inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3733 East Broadway. This is a special live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you live on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And we live in a very violent world. But at the time, back when that album we just listening to was made, it was a, we were striving for peace, especially Felix Cavallari with... Swami Swachananda, which was his guru at the time, and that was that tune was entitled Peaceful World, and my guest is known as a lead guitar player, but on that tune, he was playing bass. Buzzy Featon, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, thanks so much, Jake. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, man. Yo, okay, so let's just, this is, I was, I just found, a, I found a $6 copy of uh, Peaceful World yesterday, and, um, I really were you have incredible time feel. How did when did you are you going to tell me again that this was just sort of you walked and stumbled in, in through the back door with bass? I mean, I know the bass is only a, a guitar with four strings, but I mean, you were laying down a series. You were you were laying down a groove there. How did you learn to play the bass? Well, I started playing bass. You started I up. I started playing bass. Yeah, actually, I don't think I knew um, that. That's yeah, I started out playing bass, and uh, I had a, a band in high school called The Reasons Why. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, and we were, of course, trying to be the Beatles like everybody else, and I'd play bass in that band. And uh, I also, uh, that's also how I got the gig with Butterfield, oddly enough, was that I went to audition for Elvin Bishop's band playing bass. And Elvin... I, he didn't think I was right for his band, but he liked my playing well enough to uh, refer me to down to go jam with Butterfield at a club called The Generation in New York at 8th Street and Bleecker. And which, after that, got torn down and became Electric Ladyland. Wow. But at that time, it was a club called The Generation, so I went down there playing bass uh, to jam with Butterfield, and I guess played well enough that he asked me to come and audition on guitar because somebody told him I played guitar also. So that's uh, that's really that's f- so. That. I mean, that, I'm, so I'm, I'm a really a lame bass player. Oh, I'm, no, no, I'm no. That, that, I'm sorry, player. but that that this tune we played about a minute fifty of it. It's a twenty-six minute tune with vocals, and you're just—it's like I mean, you're just—it's like a metronome back and forth. I mean, to me, it, it, I mean, it, you might be a poor man's Chuck Rainey. But, I mean, what did you learn? How, let me ask you a question. When you were playing the surf or the Beatles, pop, psych music, uh, how did you learn as a bass player to make it round? How did you learn to make the notes round, big and round? Well, I mean, I don't know. Actually, <laughs> other than, you know, uh, <laughs> you know I dig that. I, I dig. I dig. Early on. No, but I learned early on as a kid, you know, I studied classical music when I was a kid and all through high school and went, actually went to a conservatory playing French horn. So I was, I was trained from the get-go to listen to the sounds I was making. You know, that was one of the things that, that was beat into me from a very early age, to listen to the sounds you make. That's the first thing you need to do. You like, you have to like the sounds you're making on whatever instrument you're playing. And sometimes I think that that gets overlooked or neglected. What are the what are people focused? People, what are what are people focused on that the, that that that's distracting them? Chops. Yeah. 
you know, they focus on chops and notes and, and uh, you know, technique. And they forget to listen to the sound they're making. You know, so, you know, I think that, that is a risk. Not everybody, of course. I mean, there, there's some fantastically, you know, uh, technically brilliant players that also have a great tone, you know, but so the two things are not mutually exclusive, but, you know, I think that sometimes the idea of uh, first liking the sounds you're making and then work on your technique. You know, I, okay, so I just, just for the record here, um, in, my tran- in my transcribing of our first interview, you said, Al Cooper was a big advocate of mine. He recommended me for butter, but actually you're telling me now that it was Elvin recommending you to butter. Is that right? Well, he didn't He didn't recommend me to Butterfield. He just referred me down to that jam session. He said, hey, you should go play with Butterfield. That's what Bishop so said, I don't yeah. Think he, yeah, I don't think he called Butterfield and said, hey, there's this bass player coming down there. You know, I think he just, you know, just sort of, you know, suggested it dropped it. you although yeah i don't know i don't know what happened behind the scenes i don't know whether uh, whether i would have been allowed on stage to jam with those guys had someone not dropped the bug in his ear probably not so cooper though so you, either, yeah cooper loved guitar right, players could so have been al cooper yeah cooper yeah. might have said you know I'd already worked yeah because right. because uh, because cooper loved guitar players maybe he said to butter hey you know buzz plays guitar too uh, who knows um That's yeah, that's exactly what happened. Oh, beautiful. To be okay, well, that's what I love yeah. to know. You know, um, before we get into anything, I I was so happy because I found this this tattered copy of this record, and uh, it's something that there are no clips on YouTube, and it's just an incredible record. Uh, it's called yeah. Don Cooper. What you feel is how you grow. Do you remember this vinyl at all? It was on Roulette Records. You on lead, burning electric guitar. Bernard Purdy plays drums. Another cat named John Zubak. Tom Dawes on... Oh, yeah, Beto. Yeah. Beto Zubak. Oh, my God. And Tommy Dawes. Dude, Dawes? Oh, my God, Larson. Dawes. D-A-W-E-S? D-A-W-E-S. Okay. Right. Tommy Dawes. Tommy Dawes. Don Don Cooper, the leader. Tommy Dawes. First of all, this is tripped out back cover of uh, like sort of like a almost like a uh, a road you would see up uh, in on the Taconic Parkway somewhere but it's like a it's like a rustic road with a fence with a guitar that's that's you that's being drawn as a bridge into New York City it's wild looking so we got Sanborn Dinwiddie on tenor uh Larson Larson Keith Johnson um Yehuda Ben Asher Toots Thielman yeah. and Buzz Fighting. What you feel is how wow. you is. It was on Roulette Records. I think Roulette Records was a mafia label, wasn't it? I think it was. Oh my god! Uh, no, that's, dude, that's I'm gonna I'm gonna really mail you this. This is the great. This is a gem. This record. What you feel is. Oh my god! Yeah, no, it's and you're burning on it. You're the only guitar player. I mean, you're burning. Oh, on thanks, man. Oh, I have no idea. I have never heard it. I, got, I can recall. I, I can give you some history, some backstory if you want. Well, I mean, did was Cooper from upstate New York, or what, what was? Yeah, give me a little background. Well, Tom Dawes is it was was a, fan, a fantastically successful jingle producer and writer. Uh, he also wrote. He also had a band called The Circle with a Y. Oh yeah. That had a hit called Red Rubber Ball. 
Yeah, John Simon produced that. Right. So that's Tom Dawes. Um, John Zubak is also known as Beto, B-E-A-T-O, Zubak, played with the Soul Survivors. Oh, my. And a really, and a really odd uh, P3 player named Jerry Novak, and that's how I met Beto, John Zubak. Anyway, really interesting guy. The interesting guy, this guy Jerry Novak. Anyway, John. Wait, wait, wait. Is Novak? Are these cats still with us? I, I got. Are these cats still with us? Beto is. John Zubak is. Beto, Beto, dude. Zubak is on five. Purdy plays on a couple tunes with Gordon Edwards. You, you so so basically, right. Dawes was responsible for getting you into the jingle circuit. Is that right? Yes. Wow. Yeah, he lived in Woodstock too. So we played in his band. He, he would sometimes play with us, and we used to rehearse at his house. And uh, he had a beautiful house in Woodstock, sort of a, a huge log cabin with a swimming pool in the middle of the woods. It was just, it was like, it was like heaven. Oh, you my know? gosh. And, and he had a beautiful townhouse in New York. No, also. I mean, this is, so, this is great. It says arranged, arranged by Dawes and your boy Freddie Beckmeyer. Right. Unbelievable. This is right. unbelievable stuff. Yeah. So, and and who are the other guys? Oh, yeah, Dan, Danielle Ben Zebulon. Uh, some, 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 uh, some, some, uh, uh, Yehuda, Yehuda Ben Asher. So he took his, his uh, Israeli name and then Dawes and right. Frank Owens. Um, this is weird. It says on Blueberry Pickin', which is with Tune, Neil Lart. Okay, no, I'm sorry. Neil Larson. On Step Away and Natural Way, Keith Johnson on trumpet, Sanborn on lead and alto, and Dinwiddie on tenor. Wow. Buzzy. Now, that's fine, man, because I, I, I had no idea. Well, just, just do me a favor. Private message me your uh, your address or whatever, and I, I will, I will, before I leave for New York to, uh, tomorrow, I'll, I'll put this in the mail for you because you, you need this record. This and there's nothing on. Yeah, I, I need to hear that. Oh, you need, no, you. Need, I mean, this is off the chart kind of thing. But you know, I wanted to. I, you know, this this came to me. Um, I interviewed Charlie Daniels a way back. Whatever you want to think about him, right. you know, he was a studio shark in his own right. You know, before he became a leader, he was on Nashville right. Skyline, and he told this story about being in the studio with Dylan. Were, I mean, which right. was so different. Dylan was so different than any other cat because you, he basically picked up a guitar, started to sing the song, <laughs> and then would take suggestions from people. And eventually, that's how the song was made. And I was wondering right. uh, on New Morning, uh, was that the yeah. was that, could you talk about the the way the songs came together on New Morning, and your was that the first time that you had crossed paths with uh, with Dylan? Yeah, that was the first time that I crossed paths with Dylan. Uh, Al Cooper got me on that session, I believe. Anyway, I somehow ended up there. <laughs> and, uh, and Dylan was a man of few words. You know, he, at least in this situation, he was. <laughs> you know, he would, uh, he came out and he'd go in the vocal booth with his guitar and he'd play and sing the song. And whatever however many bars there were or not there you know he would that was the song how he played it you know and sang it and he would feel stuff sometimes a little odd you know like seven bar phrases and stuff so we we got and and six beat bars and so so we kind of got used to that right and uh and we just kind of go with it just react to you know 
to, to what he was doing. But I remember being really impressed with, uh, you know, sometimes when you're in the presence of, like, a genius or, or, or some a real, real artist like that, you know, they have something that the rest of us don't have. And I don't know how to describe it. Dylan was one. Ricky Lee Jones was another. Um, where you just feel that you're in the presence of of true genius, you know, and and it's it's really interesting, you know, because you you kind of like, <laughs> you know, like I'm I'm a rabid Ricky Lee Jones fan. Um, I just think yeah, you know, I know, no, I know, I I love her too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm I I think you know there aren't a lot of people. I don't throw that word genius around lightly, and and Dylan was one of them. You know, he just had this power to draw you in to draw all the attention in the room went went on him if he didn't say a word he didn't do anything he just stood there and everybody was just riveted on him. that's incredible so i mean he didn't and, he, and, this was just he this was this was uh not even during like i can understand because you know there's something special about when you can get inside a song and tell a story and captivate people in that room but you're saying even even if he was just sort of Picking, I'm not picking his nose, but I mean, he was just there. People would gravitate to him, even if he wasn't playing music. He just commanded attention. You know, he he would just he would just draw. You know, your attention would be on him for 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 whatever reason. Ricky Lee had that ability. Mm. Like we could be in a place. Like I remember Carnegie Hall played uh, Carnegie Hall with Ricky Lee Jones, and she sat down. She came on the stage and sat down at the piano, and just looked at the audience. She didn't say a word. She just looked at the audience. There's no music going on. The place you could hear a pin drop. Mm. I mean, people were, they were afraid to breathe, you know. <laughs> and, and she just had that ability. She didn't have to do anything, you know. She was just, just by being there, you, you somehow were just drawn. You, you couldn't wait to see what she was going to do or say or sing, you know. She just had this incredible magnetism. Of, of personality and and that I think it has to do with some kind of force in them that drives them to create the way they do Ricky Lee digs deep as an artist you know lyrically just and musically I don't know anybody that uh, that has that has endured the kind of pain that she has to access the stuff that she accessed as a songwriter. If you understand what I'm trying to well, say. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I guess I've been around people like that. Uh, I'm not a musician, obviously, but sometimes until until that mis that mystery or that genius, as you call it, and that's not explainable, sort of wears away. Um, for me, I find myself being pretty unco- not uncomfortable but I don't know what I'm supposed to do or I'm afraid I'm almost afraid to screw up I mean but you're saying that even amidst let's just say Dylan for instance I mean you were still relaxed enough to play what you felt I mean he gave off that kind of vibe Sure Yeah Yeah well I mean I I considered myself a professional I mean even at that age I did consider myself a professional so I could I had the ability to uh, sort of disconnect from any discomfort or personal emotional stuff and kind of focus on the music. 
Right. You know, I, I did. I could do that. I had that that ability, and you know, uh, and because after all, I mean, that's what it, that's what it was about. But, um, but just personally, it was just it was an awesome experience. You know, to be, uh, you know. In the room with the guy, the guy that would write a the first line of the, that song. I can't remember which song it was. Is the benches were stained with tears and perspiration. Let me let me look. <laughs> I mean, the, that was just insane. Insane. Who would come up with a song that started with the benches were stained with tears and perspiration? I mean, you know, I don't know. Pretty poetic. And that's called the Day of the Locusts. Oh, the benches yeah. were stained with tears and perspirations. The birdies were flying from tree to tree. There was little to yeah. say. There was no conversation as I stepped to the stage to pick up my degree. Wow. I mean, you were seeing yeah. this. This is, I mean, that is un. Yeah, I mean, I guess at that point, um, you know. Um, well, like, I was listening to this in headphones while we were playing the song. And I was thinking, damn. <laughs> you know. <laughs> right, right. Who could come up with some shit like that, you know? And I guess it takes you out of your, your normal mindset, and so you're there to... I mean, did you... We talked about this last time with McLaughlin. I mean, where he would sort of get in your... I mean, with Miles, rather, where he would say, you know, play like you right. don't know how to play the guitar. I mean, did, did you... Right. Um, not saying Dylan was like that, but was, was there... Uh, somebody similar to you where or like was it just something like that with with the when the lyrics were so uh you know eccentric and esoteric and sort of telling these stories did it did it make it to the point where you um your playing doesn't even really sound like you're playing is there anything like that in, that you had that came out in your career some people will say to me like you know i it doesn't even sound like me you know when they were recording well um I don't know if I would describe it exactly like that, but I, I remember more than once having to turn away from the audience because there was tears streaming down my face listening to Ricky Lee sing a song. Wow. Just tears streaming down my face. I couldn't stop it, you know. I had to turn away from the audience because it was just, it was so powerful that you, you just couldn't help it, you know. She was just somewhere else, you know. And that's the power of, you know, of music. And, you know, it's funny, the same thing happened to me with Brandon Fields, sax player. Sure. Where, I, there's a song I wrote uh, called Candace Dream. No, I'm sorry, called, uh, what the hell was the name of that song? It wasn't Candace Dream. Anyway, I can't remember the name of it at this moment, but it's a ballad. It's on a Dave Weckl record, uh, Synergy, I believe. Anyway... It's a beautiful, you know, I'm, I really love the ballad. And he played a solo on it, and I was touring with him. And night after night, you know, he would play something completely different. He played a soprano solo on that song. And I remember a few times, I just, I lost it. I had to turn around and, and just, you know, kind of get my shit together. Because he, he was so deep in the music. You know, he was so deep. I consider it a, an incredible privilege to have worked with that guy and to... Uh, to have just been on the same stage with somebody that that has that kind of um, commitment and access to wherever it is that he goes when he solos, you know. No, I mean I'm just listening. To, I'm hanging on every word. I want to read you this quote and then get your. I want you to uh, sort of come at it from the point of view of 
what did you do that was close to this? Uh, this is from uh, Mike Maynary. I don't know if you ever crossed paths with the, he's a yeah, Mike Maynary. Mike sure Maynary. Okay. Yeah. He said in 1965. Now, Buzzy Feeton at that point was uh, in Long Island. I was a junior in high school. You were playing yeah, surf music, just listening to all the punk, all the other stuff that all the other Long Island punks did, like me. In 1965, Donald McDonald, Warren Bernhardt began looping. They would sit, get high, and play a gig. They'd sit there for days going through tapes of gigs that we recorded. We'd cut up these tapes, and we'd say, this would work with this, this would work with that. And they turned out to be very interesting loops. And while we were playing, Jeremy Steig would have a coloring sheet, and as we'd be playing, he'd be drawing. Slowly, these beautiful drawings would just appear on a silk screen. <laughs> we were experimenting early, yeah. early on when I used pickups on the bars of my vibraphone so I could get uh, through wah-wah pedals and various other fuzz tones and loops. Did you do something mm -hmm. similar with looping? I mean, can you talk about the... Ex Here's the thing. So many people now, we are, you know, people are... You talk about putting headphones on. And, you know, it's you and Harvey Brooks and New Morning, Day of the Locusts. But it was human beings in a studio together. A lot of isolation now. But a lot of these cats were playing games, even the hip hoppers. Hip hop came from cats going to the park and just doing it. And you talk about any kind of experimental stuff you did with looping early on or something. I just want other younger cats to realize that, you know, ingenuity and entrepreneurialism can be a cathartic thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I never really, to be honest, I was never really that guy, the technical, <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> guy. I was more in the, um, my experimentation had more to do with um, uh, playing in real time than it did with looping or, rec or recording interesting stuff. But... Um, but I know a lot of people did it. Uh, Zappa did it a lot, and the guys that worked with Zappa would do that kind of thing quite a bit. And, you know, Joe Zalinol, I mean, you know, he did all kinds of crazy shit that, you know, was fantastic. What, what, what kind know, of, I mean, with, with Cannonball, or like which kind of, what kind of stuff did he do? No, no, like when he did his own, when he did his own band, with his own band. I've just heard stuff that he's done that, you know, using samples and using, weird percussion loops and just interesting shit where he, right you know he would trip out on that you know he would he would create a eight bar loop or four bar loop or whatever and then just go go off on it you know and uh really good at it did did, did you you know this is also the funny thing this is something i wanted to get with you on is that uh you're somebody who takes pride in crafting a solo that is sequentially very coherent it, it grooves it cooks but can you talk i mean rick Murata, the drummer was talking to me about you know there's a guy and he didn't mention the name but the guy was out in la and he's decorated studio cat very big chops and uh and you know he kept saying to, to rick you know let's we should play this live gig let's, let's play live you know and rick's like okay I, you know that's yep. he's like and and he goes but you know, if we're going to do a 45 minute set, you know, I, I want to play like 20 tunes. So that means you stop wanking it for 15 minutes on a guitar solo and make so, you know, make it short and concise so we can get through a number of songs. So they did rehearsal and they're, you know, everything's going well and the groove is there and they're getting through takes and the guy's cutting his songs down. And the minute they get on the bandstand, the guy starts going off on this, you know, 
Yeah, it could be, you know, similar to a bitch's brew kind of thing. You know, it's 15-minute solo, and Rick's yelling at him, stop, stop. And, and, and you know, I just wanted you to talk about, you know, your philosophy in, in, in saying what you need to say in a short period of time and how you have effectively affected, you've perfected that craft. Well, yeah, that was a big deal to me to learn. Uh, and this is something I talked to my the people I mentor about, yeah. about you got to tell a story. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a beginning, middle and an end when you're, when you're soloing. And, you know, like a story starts with once upon a time, you know, there was a princess that lived in the forest, you know, and then it makes the, it makes the listener want to know what happened to that princess in the forest. You know, you have to start by hooking them in. Right. So, I usually start solos or suggest to start a solo like like Miles was really good at it, like to understand that space is as important, if not more important, than the note. So the use of space in the introduction of it depends on the solo, of course, you know, right, right, and the context. You know, if you have four bars, you don't have a lot of time to you know set it up. But you know, uh, the idea of of having some kind of interesting opening statement that, that, that grabs the listener's attention and makes them want to hear more. Like, it could be an odd note. It could be a, a single note with a lot of space around it. It could be a strange phrase. Just something that, you know, kind of sets the tone. What was the, like, when you talked about something, you worked on it for a long time. Uh, what was, could you talk about... Um, the big, the hardest part for you in terms of getting to that point where you felt like you were able to tell a story uh, using space and not feeling pressure to, you know, because some people, I, I guess, how did you know when to stop? How did you know when to stop? Right. Well, that was the trick. You're right. That was the challenge. That was the challenge. When to know that you, you told the story, you're done. You don't need five climaxes. You just need one. Right. You know? Right. Right. And uh, and and then and learn how to get out of it, uh, you know, gracefully, or, or get out of it uh, in a way that um, you know that that feels like a complete statement. You know, like not that you just stopped, but that you really finished the thought. You know? <laughs> right. But I mean, did you did so, was this? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Continue. Yeah, this was a big, uh, you know, this is something that I had to learn early, you know. Like most young players, you overplay. You know, you overplay, you go on and on. You know, you get, you know, like just carried away and you don't know when to stop and all that. So, you know, I, I started to craft solos to construct solos like with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the middle period uh, being a development period, you know, that that builds tension and you can build tension by, uh, adding rhythmic complexity, by adding harmonic complexity, by adding, um, you know, a denser volume of notes, you know? Um, and then, you know, kind of coming to some kind of peak or climax, you know, shortly before the ending or at the ending. You know, if you want to end it that way. So, but but it there, there's so there's, there's a left brain right brain thing going on. 
you know, the, the left brain, or I don't know which is the analytical side, which, which, which one is the I, analytical I think, side. Yeah, you know? I think that might be left brain. <laughs> right, so the left brain being, you know, you know the, the sort of calculating part, right. kind of calculates it out. But then you also have to make sure you don't neglect the right brain, the inspired part. So the trick is to balance the two, you know, so that, okay, here's my playpen. My playpen is 10 feet long and it's 8 feet wide and I can run around in that playpen, but I have to know where the edge of it is, you know, where's the end, you know, where's it, where are my boundaries? So uh, that's the trick. That's the trick. And you get better at it as, as you do it more. You know, you learn to make statement and sort of uh, work your way into more, more complexity and, uh, you know, and more intensity and sort of work your way out of it by finding something that feels emotionally satisfying somewhere towards the end, that being sort of the climax of the solo, you know, and then, you know, kind of working your way out of it gracefully, either with a, you know, in, in, by some technique, either a descending note pattern or, uh, you know, so, something like that. But all of this has to be driven by... Um, by emotional, by emotion. You have you know, to feel. Yeah, it's called feel. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's the trick. Do you find like that? That's what Brandon is so. That's what Brandon is so great at. Like Brandon understands that on a, you know a really deep level about you know starting somewhere, going somewhere, and you know. Yeah, and and at some point losing yourself in the salt, losing yourself in the emotional part of the soul. So it's like watching a tightrope walker. It's like watching a tightrope walker, you know, you know, 500 feet above the pavement with no net, you know. That's the, that's the feeling I get from watching Brandon play. Like, it's like watching a guy 500 feet off the pavement walking a tightrope because he's, he's walking between left brain and right brain, you know. And, and he, he allows himself to get swept away by emotion. But he's so technically um, uh, good that he never loses it. He never makes that false step. You know what I mean? Oh, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like Phil Woods on, on uh, Dr. Wu or Wayne Shorter on Asia. These are studio tracks, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Being able to lose yourself, yeah. but, but not to the point where it gets so free, and then you just sort of go off the off the rails. I mean, did did you would you say that butter was the best school for you? I mean, is that where you learned the most about crafting a solo and about learning the complexities or the the emotive qualities of, of it, or was it because I mean the studio the studio and live setting completely different? Right, they are. The studio is much more controlled, but it's it's a microcosm. You know, it should be, it, it, you know, in best case scenario, it should be like a sort of a mini live performance. Right, you know, right. Like a scaled down version of a live performance. You know, that's what you hope for. We have a... At least... Yeah. My opinion. Well, we, we, got, a, we got a tune here, uh, Foisted on Me by Buzz... Eaten, and uh, let's take a listen to it and then we'll uh, come back and break it down.
Music on the Jake Feinberg Show brought to you by the Jewish Community Center of Southern Arizona, the Jewish Federation of Southern Arizona, Craig Pretzinger of Allstate Insurance, and African Diaspora presents uh, BuzzFeed. And thank you so much for foisting it on me, man. I guess my question, that this ain't the world I know, did that get airplay on FM radio? No. Pathetic. And... It's pathetic. It's pathetic. I mean, that, that, uh, that, I mean, that is a. It, that's why can't uh, anyway. I mean, what's what, what was the? I mean, I know people like Mike Finnegan made albums in the mid seventies, and Jerry Wexler produced them, and there were country stations that didn't. Know, they said, "Hey, this is country soul," or you know, Finnegan's like, "Whatever it is." I mean, they couldn't find a place for it. That should find its way onto something. That's that that that. Well, track, I would think so. You know that that was been a source of frustration for me that. Uh, you know, I, I sent that project around, you know, a few labels that I thought would, would be, you know, open to it. I think it's a pretty damn good record, the, the Whirlies. Not just that song, but the whole record. I'm really proud of it. I think it's some of the best work I ever did. Why do you say that? Why, why, tell me why. Well, because I think I succeeded at uh, writing some songs that uh, that 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 had integrity as songs, first of all, that that had some really good playing on it, but that also um, w- was commercial. In other words, I I wanted to write kind of a pop record with good guitar solos and and and, but more importantly, with with decent lyrics and a great singer, and you know, just something that kind of reflected, you know, my taste musically at that time and I, I think I succeeded with it that and, and I'm really proud of that record and I think it still it still holds up you know it still it still sounds it does not sound dated to me no I mean it, 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 no it actually it, it, it reminds me of a cat who um, the the hook there's a hook in that tune um, uh, similar to a guy named Paul Farso, uh, who is a great singer for the Loading Zone, which was a Bay Area psychedelic band with Linda Tillery back in the '60s, and right. they did a they did a tune in, in a trio, uh, Chop Wood, Carry Water, and uh, it, the message is very similar. Uh, you know, as far as having a hard time understanding, just being that things have worn out, we need something new, um, and and it's just. So it resonates with me, and I think it holds up uh, better today. But again, it's like uh, this: this is the conundrum that that we face. Is just, um, I mean, I saw this thing the other day where it was like, how can you have an R and B fest? How can you have a jazz festival, and the only artists are R and B artists? You know, I mean, how have we gotten to this point where it's like? I, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, to me, it's like, how, how do you, you know, like, for just speaking to the world out there, how do you um, deal with that disappointment, Buzz? I mean, your record speaks for itself. People are commenting on here that you're doing this, you're off on this tour, you've played with all these luminary cats, but yet. When you do something that you pour your, you know, it's blood, sweat, and tears. You pour your heart and soul into something, and it, it just doesn't get any airplay. I mean, how do you basically not be resentful and and, and overcome it and, and stay inspired? 
Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm a human being. And, and so, of course, I'm going to get angry, I'm going to get frustrated, and I'm going to get pissed off. Right. But, you know, that being said, that doesn't have to make somebody bitter. You don't have to become bitter and, and defeated, you know. As far as I'm concerned, um, I love what I do. And, and that's not ego. That's not coming from an ego place. Uh, that comes from a gratitude place. I did. I'm, I'm so lucky, so incredibly blessed to have been able to do this for this long. That's the first thing. And second of all, that I've been blessed with incredible musicians in my life, you know, who I've been so fortunate to work with. You know, so that's, that, that's the underlying vibe. You know, the, the, you know, the temporary frustrations or the periodic, uh, you know, um, stuff, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's not as important as the, the gratitude. But, um, you know, uh, so, so I, I stick with how I feel about things. I don't, I don't focus on the, the bank account or the result, you know, like, hey, I didn't get rich, but I made this great record. I don't focus on that. I focus on my sense of personal achievement. And if I feel like I personally achieved something, hey, man, that's good enough for me. If the world agrees or not, that's separate issue you know what i mean no i i think it's it's spoken by somebody who who gratitude is the attitude there's just a lot of cats from your generation that even with they don't have that gratitude even with all the the decorated uh you know biography discographies and the stardom and the fame um a lot of people uh, you know there's yeah, I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, it, it just it's to me it's this is the important part of it because I mean, we're living through a time now where it's even I mean, resources, quote unquote, are getting less and less. Um and so people are just, you know, you say, Okay, run to the end of the block, I'll give you a hundred bucks. People are so desperate that that resentment and bitterness in a quantitative way comes in so much because of the greed factor. And it's just so important. Sure, it's so sure. important. But that and that was not the the mentality of Levon Helm and Paul Butterfield and and you know the all the jug bands and Art Blakey and all. I mean, these cats wanted to make a living, but they wanted to wash away the dust of everyday life for those patrons who came in. And uh, you know, I just I say, you know what it is, Jay? Yeah, go ahead. You know what it is? Yeah, I want to live a magical life. I want to live a magical life. And I made that choice a long, long time ago. And that's up to me. That's up to me. If I live a magical life or if I leave, or if I live a life of quiet desperation. So, you know what I mean? I'd like and, you to, no, but I, this is I, what I, I want, you know, I mean, th th people use that word. And so what, how, so tell me about it. Unpack it a little bit deeper. Well, magic for me is what happens when, when people play music together. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a gift from God, man. We don't create that. We, we don't create anything. We're just vehicles. We're channels. Right. And sometimes God throws a big bucket of talent into somebody, and sometimes he doesn't. He gives that person talent in another area, you know. So musical talent is a gift 
from God. And it's random, and you're lucky if you have it. And the best you can hope to be is a good proprietor or a good a good steward of that, you know, gift. Absolutely. And the, the, so, the question is, the, the key is that you recognize what your gifts are and 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 well, and I, that keeps you away from the quiet des- uh, uh, de- uh, isolation and uh, desperation so to speak is that right well yeah and i just don't try to take credit for it right right that's all right you know i don't take credit if i have talent i don't take any credit for that that's that has nothing to do with me that's just a gift like somebody gives you know walks up to you and gives you a million dollars you know, then you have the freedom to do a lot of stuff, you know, with that money. But it's a gift. You didn't earn it. So, you know, like, I believe that God gave me and other people that happen to have talent um, the chance to live a magical life if they choose to. If they choose to. So that's what it's about for me, man. You know, and because uh, I don't want to live an ordinary life, I don't want to live that gray, you know, kind of defeated, you know, survival life. You know, I don't want to live that life. I want to. I want to swing for the fences, if you, you know, <laughs> so to speak. You know, you know, it's, and, it's awesome. You know, I, oh, it's great. I don't want to stand there at the plate and watch strike three go by. You know, I want to take a cut at it. Yeah, and you're going to drive one to the gap. I mean, I guess the 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 thing is that you need to still um uh have steady work. And I think a lot of people wind up right. crawling into that that place of desperate quietness because uh you know, they look at it and say, "Oh, well, whatever the, the, my glory is, the best are behind me or there's no places to play or there's no kind of music that really motivates me and they're trapped and you know and they're beautiful people and i feel bad but you do need to have that stream of you you still need to have the gigs and the gigs are what's gone now that's to me the biggest the concept albums are gone the industry is gone the you know the so you still need to have that the, the gratification of the gig so that you have something to focus on and so that you can hit the ball you know yeah, but here's the deal, man. Yeah. Um, that's why. Uh, that's why I, I. I think I. We talked about it before. I think there needs to be, and I think that that it may be starting to happen, where there are little enclaves of people with resources right. who want to support art. They want to, you know, want to uh, create those bits and labels where people can do awesome music and the artists are going to be okay. You know? That's what needs to happen. People with money that care about good music need to pony up. They need to step up to the plate and say, okay, if I love good music, you know, uh, then I need to support it because there aren't any more labels to do that. I need to either create a label or, you know, support, support artists in some way with money. Um, nothing's free. I can't go to the guy that fixes the brakes on my car and say, hey, bro, just fix it, man. You know, uh, you know, 
Yeah, no, I'll get you and later. I'll, 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 I'll buy you a beer. Yeah, yeah I'll catch you later. Yeah, you know, just, but that's what's happened with music. Exactly. You say, hey, hey, man, just give me some, give me some great songs. Give me some great songs. Give me some great music. I don't, I don't want to pay for it. Just give it to me. Oh, yeah, and in the live and setting, like, they're like, yeah, you want to play here? No problem. Uh, I mean, you can pay to play here. You know, you you can you can play for the door. We're not going to give you any money. You know that that mentality. I I'm with you though. The enclave part, and I think the other thing that's interesting, even though I don't travel nearly as much as I'd like to in the states, is that the flyover towns in this country seem to be now the new meccas of these enclaves, as opposed to what the cities used to represent uh, back in the in uh-huh. the in, when you were coming to form. You know, we before we wrap up part two here, and we're we're not even close to being done because Buzz gave me another track that we're going to have to pick up on in part three. But I wanted to ask you, we just lost him. How did you wind up going to Capricorn to play on Laidback, Greg Allman? Oh, bro, I don't even know if I should tell the story on the air. But <laughs> I, I think let's, I, I mean, anyway. yeah, whatever you want to do, the PC ver, whatever you want. I mean, it, it's actually, it's it's kind of a statement about that period of time, first of all, and about, you know, I was not doing well during that period. And I remember, um, this is kind of a funny story, actually. I remember waking up in a hotel room, had no idea where I was, with a bandage on my arm. And I took the bandage off, and there's a tattoo under there. I had no, no idea how I got a tattoo or why I was in the strange hotel room. Yes. <laughs> so I had to call down to the desk. Yeah. So I had to call down to the hotel desk and ask what town we were in. You know, and it was making Georgia. <laughs> so that's how I started. You know. Wait, 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 uh, wait, wait, hold on. Yeah. you were. <laughs> you don't remember getting the call to come down for the session. You just woke up in a bed. I don't remember anything. I just remembered that I was in a strange hotel room with a tattoo. Do you remember? Do you remember flying to Georgia? You don't remember any of this. No. Wow, this is no. unbelievable. You were down because I'm like, dude, Buzz was. I found this record the other day. Open the gatefold, and it's like, I mean, Dwayne. You know, it's Greg's first solo album. It's like Buzzy Fighting's playing. Yeah. But I'm like, Buzz was in was down in Macon, and you don't even remember how you got there. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you know, I can look back at it and laugh. I mean, it was pathetic at the time, but you know, I and and I did manage to get my shit together enough to I did come to myself and you know you know clean myself up enough to make a presentable showing at the session right but, you know that was that was a very sad period of my life back to the early 70s I was not you know that period right then whenever that was it was not a um a happy time for wow me. that's so, really amazing because I'm, you're you're it, it's so amazing because you can take so much for someone like myself who wasn't even born at that time and looking back and just being on sort of a buzz kick lately so much, you know, you might've, you know, spiritually been suffering, but your playing was great. Well, thank you, man. I I mean, it's it's just, it's the ultimate, you know, sort of dichotomy of life. I mean, where you, you know, in your heart, that you know, with both feet on the ground, that you were in turmoil, and yet, you know, you're playing your butt off. I mean, I guess the the, the question I had was, did you like? <laughs> I know you don't remember how you got there, but 
Did, did you have a buddy? Did, I mean, did Greg actually call you for the session? How did you even get the nod to, to come down there? Well, I think I got a call from a manager or something. Right. You know. Wow, this is and, that's fascinating. So, um, so I got to bounce out for a couple weeks here and go to New York, but um, I, I'm going to mail out this Don Cooper record to you, and um, and let's uh, let's plan on get. Are you going to be out of the? Are you be traveling at all, or can we pick this back up in the in maybe a month or so? Sure, of course. All right, it was great, I'd man. Love to. It was great. It was just a, it was. Yeah, I enjoy it, man. I I enjoy talking to you. It was a ball, man. I'll have this up later, uh, you know, and uh, I'll get you a copy of this and send me tech. Uh, Private message me your uh, your address so I can send this record to you because it, it's I mean this this I mean this is an amazing album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll sure do that. Man. Yeah. And if you'd like to have a copy of the Whirlies, I'll send you one. Yeah, no, pl- I, you know what? You have it on vinyl. You have it or CD? No, I got it uh, digital. Yes, yes. What I would love, you know, what it's crisp and it's and it's. I'd love to hear the whole album actually. So that would be super cool. Yeah, sure. All right, man. Much love, Buzz, and we'll we'll be in touch, man. And uh, you know, thanks for inspiring people all over the globe, man. As you can tell, those stories people are getting off on this stuff. And uh, well, you know, it's you know what, bro. Yeah. I, I I really appreciate it, and and you you're an important you're an important person. You're doing an important job here uh, by by reminding people that uh, that that there's a different way to be. You don't have to be, and that's what that song was about. That this ain't the world I know. We don't have to. We don't have to live by other people's rules. You can live by your own, you know. And uh, it's a lot more fun. And let me tell you, I'm going to need a Jake Feinberg benefit show concert to keep it going pretty soon. So let's rally the troops. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm with you, man. You can. Hey. You, you know what? Uh, much love to you, man. Have a ball, and uh, let's just stay in touch. I'm really psyched. This is uh, part two. We're we're cooking along here. So, talk to you soon, man. Cool. Okay, thanks, Jake. Later, dude. Bye. Bye.